Thank you for downloading this edition of the Wings Museum podcast for May 2022, which includes Morgans, Mitchells and military vehicles various. Things have been quite busy at the museum over the last few weeks, and visitors to the museum cannot fail to notice the addition of an aircraft's rear fuselage just outside the front door. A little more on that later. But first, we hear from someone who's organised a visit to the museum for the Brighton Centre of the Morgan Sports Car Club. My name is Geoffrey Deer, and I am the organiser of this event to Wings Museum. What the event was today was lots of Morgan cars arrived, and it made us all smile. Yes. Well, I think there were about 25 or 26 different types of Morgans, and Morgans, some of the Morgans were probably 40, 50 years old, and some were a year or two old. So you had a huge variation in the types of Morgans that were built, and uh, they were built, Morgans were built of wood since the Second World War, um, because of course steel was very difficult to get hold of. So there's some link between the traditional English sports car, uh, Morgan, and actually what is on show here at Wings. So you say there are lots of different kinds, why do they all look very, very similar? Yes, <laughs> well, I think it's because Morgan started off uh, making three-wheelers. And there weren't any three-wheelers here today. There weren't, any three, 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 there weren't any three-wheelers, but you can actually buy a brand new three-wheeler Morgan still. Cost about £40,000. Um, but they started off as three-wheelers and progressed um, in the 30s, 20s and 30s, into four-wheel cars as well. But that tradition remains. And if you saw a Morgan built in 1925, 1930, 35, you'd instantly recognise it as a Morgan. So there were certain things that they've decided, uh, they kept. One was the cowling and the broad style of the car. But generally speaking, there are three types of Morgans. One... Um, with usually about a 1600cc engine, uh, sometimes two seats, sometimes four seats. Then there's something with a little bit more engine power, which is a two-litre one, and the big engine one, which is four litres. But basically, Morgans hand-built the cars, so they build the superstructure, they build the chassis and the floor, and the floors are wood, by the way, ship's wood, and the whole infrastructure is uh, um, uh, birch wood, uh, they use aluminium and steel in the construction. So what they've managed to do is build an array of cars that uh, reflect, I suppose, the personality of people who are uh, by them. Although I must say, it, about 75% of their production goes abroad, and they only make about six or seven cars a, a week anyway. But they like the traditional methods, and they still keep to those traditional methods. And they just now, as a style of car, represent, I suppose... Um, the history of uh, British motoring. And, I mean, as beautiful a British sports car as you can really drive. Yeah. Yes, they're not built for comfort. <laughs> um, There's a lot of hats being worn today. <laughs> yes, so you can pay an awful lot of money for a brand new one, but you'll still get wet if, uh, if, if it rains. A lot of the suspension system is still uh, based on designs uh, before the Second World War, sometimes even the First World War. And uh, so you will not buy one for comfort, um, but you will buy it for the originality and the fact that it is handmade. 
and that's an important factor. So completely different skills you'd imagine to normal car making skills in that wood is involved yeah. in, a, in a structural sense rather yeah. than just in a very very thin layer as a veneer. Yes <laughs> that's great so so that they didn't start with uh, wood but they um, did have to go there be, uh, uh, before the second world war and they've kept to to that so you can pay a hundred thousand pounds for a brand new Morgan and still have it made of wood. And somebody said to me once, uh, I said to somebody, the floor, gosh, it's just wood. And they said, don't worry about the floor, it's ship's wood, and it will not deteriorate. Worry about other parts of the car. <laughs> yes, well, well, I'd imagine that is, with any British car, <laughs> rust, I would imagine, over the years has been more of an issue than, than the wood. Yes, um, uh, as I said, uh, I think earlier that the cars are usually made of aluminium or steel. Yeah. Um, they are generally looked after, although they don't take too kindly to the sea and <laughs> sea air. That doesn't help them at all. And what happens with them is that probably after about 20 to 30 years, a lot of people then will have them renovated. And once they're renovated, they've got another 20 or 30 years. So it is not uncommon to find a Morgan of 40 or 50 years old that might have only done 15 or 20,000 miles. So it's not the mileage, it's just the age. And, and it's something people have and they pass on to the next generation they, to enjoy. They, they, they often do. And I suppose from a commercial point of view, because of the uniqueness, the value tends to be pretty stable. Mm. So my car is 40 years old. The price that um, I bought it for was the same as the previous owner. It was the same as the previous owner, which was when it was brand new. Yeah. So from that point of view, it's, quite, it's, it's proved to be a decent investment. But people buy them for the fun and because they're quirky and because um, they just like traditional things. Lots of fresh air. Um, <laughs> so, so your car is 40 years old. What, how would you describe it? An old lady. <laughs> um, you take a look at you think, is this going to get me from A to B? <laughs> but it always does, always does. And uh, but I know that I have to look at the weather, and think, is it going to rain or not? So, for example, if it is going to, if I make a wrong judgment, uh, and it suddenly pours with rain, then it could be at least twenty, twenty-five minutes before I can get the hood on. And if it's the winter time, I can't get the hood on. You get wet. <laughs> None of these jobs are quick either, are they? <laughs> no. So, so what, what model is it? Uh, mine is a, a called a Morgan 4-4, 1600cc, and it is four seats. And that must be quite rare, I would imagine, yes. in amongst most of them, which are two. Yes, they don't make four seats anymore. And at the time, I think they felt that it would be ideal to take children to school in the back seats. Except that what they didn't tell the children is that your head would be at least six to nine inches above the front windscreen. So anything more than 20 miles an hour and you would get blown into death <laughs> in the car. They, were, like they would arrive at school invigorated by the fresh air again, you see. They would. And, and the funny thing was that the magazine advertising them back in the 80s actually depicted that lady <laughs> driving the car with two kids of about uh, eight or nine years of age in the back seat, looking all very happy. Was it moving at the time? <laughs> it, no, it wasn't moving at the time. No, that's great. So, you've come to visit Wings today. Yep. What do you think of the place? I think it's quite unique. I think um, it's one of these places that a lot of people would see the signs and say, Wings, what does that mean? Um, and then I must go and visit, but possibly don't.
So coming in an organised group uh, encourages people uh, to look. And I think it's uh, a different museum because it also tries to put uh, the human picture together with the um, uh, parts of, uh, of these aircraft. And that makes the stories uh, very poignant. So but certainly every part has a story behind it yeah. and it is hopefully illustrated in some yeah. way. Yes, that, that's, that's exactly right. And, uh, and I think that makes it um, a, a really interesting um, uh, type of museum. And I hope it goes from success to success because uh, let's not uh, underestimate the costs of running something like this. The people involved and their volunteers and they have to give a lot of their time. And some of these people have really great expertise and you can see the plans that they're working on, that they really are experts in engineering and, and, and building uh, the, uh, aeroplanes are complicated. So it's really uh, an expertise um, uh, quite unique. Uh, really impressed, I think everybody enjoyed it. They loved, loved the occasion and um, it was enjoyable for all. The only thing I would say is that we as a group tend to be possibly um, slightly older. <laughs> um, so it's certainly of interest to, to, to that generation, but it should be also of interest to children, younger people, just to see what some of these young people had to go through at that time. And the fact that at the moment we're concerned about Ukraine and things, a lot of the stories seem to be getting repeated and uh, we're seeing it all through the Instagram eyes now. Well, you can see actually the destructive force of weaponry on these aircraft. And of course we're seeing pictures from Ukraine showing the same sort of thing. And uh, it tries to depict here some of the stories of people, but this is happening as we speak. Whether you're sitting in a tank, in an armoured car, or flying a plane, or just a bomb actually dropped on you. So it does um, have relevance to what's happening today. Many thanks to Geoffrey and all of the other Morgan owners who brought their fantastic cars for us all to admire. You can find some video of them on the Wings Museum YouTube channel. Now, at the beginning of May, the museum team, accompanied by an appropriately long vehicle, set off onto the motorway network to bring back to the museum a large part of the jigsaw of a continuing restoration project. Museum curator Daniel Hunt tells us more. Today we've been up to Peterborough to collect a B-25 Mitchell rear fuselage for our bedsheet bomber project, which uh, some of you may realise the bedsheet bomber used to be a gate garden at North Weald and uh, we've had the cockpit and the wings at the museum for at least uh, two years now where we've been uh, busy carrying out a restoration but what we really need and uh, hence our trip today is to collect the rear fuselage because it still has the actual centre section on it which we need to get removed and it needs to be joined to the inner wings which were tragically cut some years ago so we've got the quite tricky challenge now of uh, reattaching everything so out of all the bits uh, we've got the front the back a couple of wings anything missing um, we've got uh, still the undercarriage to collect but that that isn't so much of a problem, but obviously uh, we've needed quite a large vehicle today to get the fuselage because I think it's about 11 metres long, so it's uh, been quite a large lump that's been heading down the A1 today. And we're uh, dashing back to the museum now with a uh, car with any number of other bits uh, all associated with the Mitchell. Uh, most of it and then a few bits that I'm not actually sure about at the moment but uh, 
you know, a few few bits that come from a scrapyard. So I'm not actually sure what they are at the moment. They're completely covered in a thick layer of dust, but we shall see. Yeah, there's quite a lot there for us to be getting on with. We're sort of nearing the latter parts of restoring the, the outer wing sections. Um, so it's been decided that we kind of need to begin work now in recovering the, the actual centre section, which is a production break, but at the moment it's still attached to the rear fuselage. So uh, it's, it's not going to be a five minute thing splitting that because it probably hasn't been split since 1944. And what we've collected today is Let's put it politely, a rather large thing. Uh, where is it going when it gets back to the museum? Um, for the time being, it's going to go outside the front of the museum because um, obviously we need to be able to get to it with forklifts and things to actually get the, air, the, the fuselage split. But uh, you know, when you sort of think that it's been outside for the last 40 years, uh, another six months probably won't hurt it. But it's just, I think, nice to get it back um, and it's quite encouraging today that the actual rear section from a corrosion point of view isn't actually too bad which is good because some of the aircraft has really suffered um, because it spent quite a considerable amount of time at North Weald where it was parked in long grass which is uh, always a bit of a, a disaster for aircraft because grass is very rarely is it dry so it's always giving off a lot of moisture and it creates a lot of corrosion in wheel wells and the underside of the aircraft but the rear fuselage isn't actually in bad shape so I'm quite pleased about that. And to see how the team got on with the collection once again take a look at the Wings Museum YouTube channel. I can highly recommend subscribing. Finally for this episode Last Sunday, the museum was treated to a visit from the West Sussex area of the Invicta Military Vehicle Preservation Society, known as IMPS, and some of their members' collection of fascinating military vehicles. In the bright sunshine of the late afternoon, once we'd given him time to look around the museum, we caught up with one of the Jeep owners. My name's Pete Marshall. I'm a military vehicle owner and uh, sometime World War II reenactor. Uh, I came over here today with our local military vehicle group just to take a look at the Wings Museum, somewhere I've been meaning to come to for many years and haven't done for a long time. And as you say, you came way back when, when uh, the museum was in Red Hill? Yeah, the only other time I've seen it was when it actually opened in Red Hill originally and they had a military vehicle meet then, so I turned up in uniform with the vehicle and um, saw the museum as it was in the original site and I've been meaning to go back ever since and I'm afraid to say I hadn't managed it until today but it's great to see the, the way it's come on from its first beginnings. A lot of people sort of say old bits of aeroplane what's to see there but it's not old bits of aeroplane what it is it's the stories that go with them and what's great about this place is the amount of research that's been done they're not just bits of twisted metal there's the stories about the people and the, the machinery behind it and that's what I think is fascinating. And you're here today with your vehicle is there a story behind that? Unfortunately, it's not quite as old as it looks. Um, it's, it's actually a post-war Jeep, although it looks exactly the same as the, the World War II Jeeps. Um, it's, it's known as a Hotchkiss. It was built in France, but on the World War II tooling, what happened after the war, the French bought the World War II tooling and carried on making them in France for the French military. So it's a, a slightly upgraded version, if you like, to the World War II Jeep, but externally it looks more or less identical. So I've had it since 1998. Uh, started off doing American reenactment and U.S. Army Air Force. Uh, then got roped in with a 
the celebrations in uh, 2000 for the Battle of Britain, I started doing RF reenactment. So I've now got two different bonnets or hoods, if you prefer, for the <laughs> for the Jeep, and it can come out in either RAF or US Air Force guys. So why does this interest you? Do you think? I'm probably of the the generation where my parents grew up during the war, and some of the older people I knew actually remembered it firsthand. So as a kid, it really caught my imagination. I suppose it's that big thing that I just missed which is probably a good thing but um, I've heard stories from other people that were there during the time and it's fascinated me I suppose growing up in the 60s there were lots of war films and things as well they were popular at the time and that's what really got me I went on to become a bit of an aviation enthusiast so it's more the the aviation side of World War Two that holds more of an interest for me it's just grown from there I suppose really and you're also mentioning that you give talks about uh, radar uh, yeah, on occasions. Um, one of the reenactment groups I work with have got a, a reproduction of um, the ops room at Uxbridge, in effect. Um, we, we tend to do it more as a sector control room and give talks from a tent um, rather than a, an underground bunker. But what, I try, or what we try and do is give the public an idea of how the Dowding system of command and control works. So incorporating radar, the Royal Observer Corps, the command and control system and, and all the uh, infrastructure that was associated with it. And that is actually quite a complex structure, isn't it? It's reasonably complex, not as not as complex as you might think, actually, when you get down <laughs> to it. But, um, yeah, it is quite uh, quite good for people to see. They, they see on the films the blocks moving on the table and stuff. It's nice for them to know what it actually means. So how much detail do you go into from a, from a technical perspective? Not too much, because to be honest, the, the poor public would glaze over. I've probably <laughs> talked to them for about 20 minutes or so. You have to gauge your audience. I mean, that some people are interested, some aren't. But it's quite gratifying to know that when you get rid of one crowd, the people at the back come forward and ask questions because they missed the beginning of the talk and want to hear it all. So, so yeah, it's, it's possibly a little bit simplified, but it gives them the bare bones of how it works. And it, it means if they watch something on the TV, they actually know what's going on then instead of just seeing block marking or moving on the table. I'd probably pick holes in the detail in the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite possibly, yeah. So people who come to these talks, have you sort of suddenly found someone who's, you know, son or daughter of someone who was involved and, you know, suddenly you're actually giving them insight that their parents never did? Yeah, certainly, yeah. I mean, not just with the RF side of it. We did a, a talk for some World War II veterans at Duxford some years ago when I took the Jeep in US Air Force markings. We all went up in uniform. Basically, we provided a B-17 crew all in uniform for the, the veterans that came back. And at one point, I was talking to a guy who said to me, he's learned more about the war from his father that day than he'd learnt in the 30 years preceding because his dad never spoke about it. But once he got to Duxford, they had people in the uniforms and the aircraft there and that, he opened up a bit about his memories. And it's really gratifying to know that you can pass that on even within a family. Yeah, and tr triggering those memories that perhaps immediately post-war people sort of did sort of suppress, didn't they? I suppose that's right. Yeah, I'd say I'm lucky enough not to have lived through a mm. combat operations. But yeah, I suppose a lot of people did just want to forget it initially. But it's such a big part of their lives. I don't think you can ever completely forget it and it must be nice to be able to share it to some degree with people later on in life. To keep up with what is happening at the Wings Museum you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and as I might have mentioned before YouTube. You might not be surprised to know that you can find something from last year's visit from Imps on the YouTube channel. You can also of course find much much more on the museum website wingsmuseum.co.uk.